0: Welcome to Farming Eternal, an eternal podcast for farmers hosted by me, Patrick, or Patomaru, and Hats on Lamps. It's episode 55. For those of you tuning in for the first time, we are a draft focused podcast. Our goal is to help you and me, mostly me, get better at draft. We get into the nitty gritty of the drafting process with a little meta analysis and play tips thrown in. This week we're going to talk about how our Draft Week went, Thank Your Patrons, Card of the Week, 7 Win Run Breakdown, and our main topic is building power bases. As well as this week we have a special guest, Collector. Hello, Collector.
1: Hello, how are you guys doing? Good. Good. How are you? All right.
0: So let's begin. So first off, uh, Collector, have you been doing any drafts this week?
1: I've only managed to fit in two this week. One was a seven-zero, and the other was a
0: 4-3. Okay, well that's not so bad. How have, how have you been enjoying this format so far?
1: Um, I feel like I've been enjoying it a lot more than some of the other people I've talked to. They're not high on invoke and I don't mind it, so.
0: Yeah, invoke is a contentious a contentious keyword. I'm also not that against, I feel like invoke is definitely, has not been my problem with the format. But I am having still not totally clicking with the format, which is not put it very high up in in my opinion of it. But I don't think the problem is invoke. What do you think the problem is? I'm the unluckiest internal player. Okay, well that's <laughs> that
2: that narrows it down. Yeah. <laughs> At um, least it's not
0: a problem with the format. <laughs> not, not necessarily. This format has just exacerbated that fact. Is the problem? I gotcha. Yeah. Well, if it's a if it's
2: a swingy format, then being unlucky would be worse. That does make sense. How was your draft week, Cass? Uh It's fine. Can't complain. Uh, I don't know how much I'm drafting. I feel like I'm drafting a little bit less than I than I than I sometimes am, but it's going fine. Yeah, uh, I
0: mean, you still managed to get the number one. I did manage
2: to get to number one, yeah, and I'm uh, that that's fluid. Uh, there's 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 quite a few players that are that are playing playing hard and grinding up at the top there. So who knows if I'll end up at rank one or not? But I'm in contention, and uh, I seem to be able to draft a pretty wide variety of decks and still have success with them. So that's good. I do think there's some archetypes that are inherently stronger than others, but I think that you can do well trying to do a pretty wide variety of things. So, I'm so on board with that. I think my the theme for this last week, as far as what my strategy has been, is I've been doing a lot of Stone Scar aggro, and it's been working out pretty well. I don't get a lot of seven wins with it, but I get like five, six wins usually, maybe seven if it goes goes really well. Um, so, I think that's a viable archetype now that sort of high strength units. Um, and then when they go to the void, they power up other cards, and you can give quick draw to things, that general theme for um, for a deck. I've uh, been enjoying that. Plus, drafts don't take that long when you draft that way, so it's been it's been fun. <laughs> well, that's cool. Have you been drafting this week, Patrick? I have not done any
0: drafts this week, actually. Um, I, I uh, this is this was sort of this is a callback to the very early stages of the show, but for a long time at the beginning of the show. Uh, Every week, I would spend about 10 minutes talking about this replicator engine deck that I was working on for Construct It. And then I would erase all of that (laughs) from the episode. Mm -hmm. And so the episodes were just filled with us Mm -hmm. talking about how much I talked about this replicator engine deck. And then um, when Martyr Chains came out, I had to put the deck down. No longer worked. but. They just released Tempting Offer, the new power card that reduces the cost of colorless cards, and it yes. inspired me to dust off the old Replicator Engine deck. So that's, in my limited playtime, all I've been doing is playing Constructed with uh, Replicator Engines. Okay, and are
2: you going to erase this from from the this episode? <laughs> or I might. This? So it yeah. might just
0: be us talking about me talking about Replicator I'll,
2: engines. I'll refer to it as often as I can now. <laughs> yeah.
0: but uh my i have a new crowning achievement i um i beat andrew beckstrom with the deck and then got him to accept my friend request did you chat yeah we chatted for a little bit mostly i just said hey you should stream more and uh (laughs) he was like no
2: (laughs) 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 but uh but yeah so your draft week was uh, was perfect. Then <laughs> it was perfect.
0: Actually, my last two drafts have been seven wins. There you um, go. So I'm on a high note. I drafted this mess of a deck, which I have a screenshot in the show notes. So maybe we'll talk about that later. Okay. Which, uh, if I could figure out how to turn this into a deck, I might play draft again. All right. And then, as always, we like to take our announcement segment to thank our patrons at Patreon.com/slash/Farming Eternal where for as little as a dollar a month, you get access to our show notes and recording bloopers and also nudge us towards our patron goals. And I talked about this last week in our last episode, but um, there are, uh, Eternal does have a lot of great streamers and I think it has more of a Twitch culture than a podcast culture. There are a lot less podcasts, but um, podcasters are people too and we do accept (laughs) donations. And unlike Twitch, where you have to spend $5.99 to support your favorite streamer, with a podcast, like I said, you can just do it for a dollar a month. That's all you need. So easy, so cheap. It's a little, it's not easy actually. It's a lot harder than subbing on Twitch, but it's still possible and we'd love you to do it. And we'd really appreciate even a dollar a month. It's like one sixth of a streamer and you get one sixth of the content really. (laughs) That <laughs> but
2: <it's, laughs> this pitch is really going up and down in quality we we really we really what we, we really do appreciate all of our uh, all of our patreons and it does keep us motivated to keep going so uh it may it may take a couple of extra steps than just going on twitch and smashing the subscribe button but uh but uh it's worth it to keep different kinds of content on this game coming
0: and then the other thing we do here is thank everyone who does who has taken the time for the to make those extra clicks to subs? I guess you don't subscribe. To Patreon our patron, or Patron or Patreon? Patronize. And those people Mercurial Blue, Abednego, <laughs> Meagles, Madness, Titus and Blossom, Parmalee, Darth Herman 2, Twin Hacks, Cassandra, Jed the Hammerd Raven Dragon, Esred0215, Sunblaze, Worked on Sun, and Yisdap. Thank you once again for, for being so patronizing. <laughs> Nailed it <laughs> Alright, on to card of the week So, Collector, what is your card of the week?
1: Uh, so, the card I want to talk a little bit about Is Ancient Manual And I want to say, don't play it Pretty much ever uh, So, there's a few situations Where like, People play Ancient Manual, right? Like, They're playing like a three-color deck They are light on fixing And they want to play it so they actually have some but your main two colors, you'll probably have enough from your base sigil count anyway. And then, um, you know, uh, when you're doing your third splash, you generally don't want to be splashing double influence cards to begin with. Um, and in that case, a a sigil of the color of your choice would just be better because it comes to play undepleted. Because um, you really shouldn't be splashing your double influence cards. And then, if you're going four and inf- four. Uh, faction as well, like that is kind of the only time I do it. If you have two main uh, factions, and you know, two that are just a splash of one color, but even then, like they'll come into play depleted, will hurt you, and it just never does what you want. And, yeah, just I don't like the card. Uh,
2: just to remind anyone who may not be able to picture the card at this moment, Ancient Manual is a power card. It comes into play depleted, and it says gain influence in a faction you don't already have.
1: Thank you, I should have left with that.
2: No worries. Um, Yeah, I'm down on the card as well. Uh, I feel like I was playing it for as long as I could reasonably hang on to the idea that it might be good, and in this format I haven't been playing it at all. And part of that is that this format uh, has a lot of good double influence cards, so Ancient Manual is actively bad if you're hoping to double up on influence um, for your main factions. But also, yeah, it often doesn't do what you want it to do, and there's so many other options for fixing in this format that Ancient Manual is almost always the worst one.
0: For me, it's the double influence thing. Um, I hadn't really thought about it in the way Collector sort of laid it out, where even, say, like in the last format, where you were doing more of these two-color splash a third than in this format, where you're. I think you're more often in, like, where you can more often be in a solidly three-color, where Ancient Manual is even worse, I think, because often you, (laughs) I feel like, at least in my decks, maybe this is my problem, is you end up with double influence cards in all three of your factions. And Ancient Manual doesn't really do a ton to help you in that situation. But even in the last format, where you're two colors splashing a third, an Ancient Manual might as well be your splash sigil in a lot of those cases. And it would
2: only be better because it's then undepleted. Yeah, might as well just put the card in that you want the ancient manual in there for.
0: Well, that that kind of leads us into your card of the week, uh, where some people claim it can also just be replaced
2: with an undepleted sigil. And one of those people is me. So uh, my card of the week is Calibrate. Uh, Calibrate, um, Calibrate uh, has a lot of words on it, and so I'm just going to read it uh well maybe this will just give you something to edit here patrick so calibrate uh is a spell it costs one time uh, and it says draw a relic or power card from the top five cards of your deck and put the rest on the bottom so it's a filtering card and it filters for relics and it filters for power cards um and i my opinion of this card has gone up and down i chose it as my card of the week uh, for two reasons. One is that there seems to be sort of an ongoing debate uh, about the quality of it. My arm was twisted. The other one... Oh, three reasons. Two, my arm was twisted. <laughs> I was asked to talk about this card, even though I don't really have any passion about it anymore. And three, can we talk about the last episode just briefly? Yeah, we recorded. Please. We recorded an episode last week, Patrick and me, Um And we did kind of a joke thing because I didn't like Calibrate and Patrick did like Calibrate. So we both chose Calibrate as our card of the week and then had two separate discussions, never acknowledging that we were talking about the same card. It was uh, a bit of comedic genius and no one will ever hear it because Patrick didn't hit record (laughs) when we were recording the episode. So we just had a two hour long conversation about Eternal and that's it. (laughs) So, So now we're doing Calibrate again, except a week has gone by and I uh, no longer I no longer dislike the card as much as I did I've been experimenting with it in decks and it's fine for what it is but I do think that I'm not excited to see it in packs unless I'm playing a relic heavy deck essentially the best calibrate can ever be is to allow you to draw a card five turns earlier than you would have drawn it otherwise um and that means it's very limited in what it's able to do if you're playing a deck that's fairly defensive you're probably going to draw those cards anyway um and basically what calibrate can do for you in a deck that is uh that has a lot of relics in it is when you top deck it you can skip to your next relic instead of drawing a sigil um which is good And then early in the game, you can draw a sigil probably off of it unless you happen to have a handful of sigils and maybe you get lucky and get a relic. Um, But most of the time, if you cast Calibrate, it's going to be on one of the first couple of turns and then it might as well be a depleted power. And it's not as good as Seek Power because Seek Power can get any uh, color of faction and Calibrate usually doesn't give you that many choices of which power card that you get. So it's essentially like a depleted power of a random faction which isn't that great by itself Um, but the fact that it can filter for relics later in the game gives it a subtle kind of power and so i think there are cases where it's a perfectly fine card to play as long as you're not including it as a playable in your deck as long as you're counting it as another source of power so you don't tend to flood out because you happen to be playing calibrates that's how I feel about the card now. I'm not excited about it, but I don't think it's unplayable. And I did go through a period of time where I thought it was essentially unplayable, except in very niche decks. Collector, what's your opinion on Calibrate?
1: I mean, I'm a little bit similar it than that. I think its main purpose is to, you know, be able to tutor for your relics a lot earlier than you would normally get them. Like, make sure you hit that Waystone Gate on three or, you know, something similar to those lines. Um... I don't like when people, uh, you know, trim on power to play it because generally, um, you know, it can whiff sometimes, that happens, but um, generally you're playing it because you want to get to your really powerful relics quicker and so you can actually close out the game. Um, And if you skimp on power to play that, then you end up often having to take the power because your hand is like, you know, two power that you played. Nothing else than a bunch of like five cost cards. So um, I'd rather just have the same amount of power and just go to my really powerful artifacts, or relics rather.
0: Mm-hmm. So to, to get to put this in more concrete terms, um, I guess for both of you guys, like when you say you want this in a relic deck, how many relics are you talking about sort of at minimum?
1: I'm probably talking like four.
0: And then also when you say you don't like to skimp on power for a calibrate, two questions is like, would you be, would you be willing to play multiple calibrate in a deck? And at what point would you skimp on power? Like if, would you say like two calibrates are worth the power or would you just never go down on power?
1: I'm not quite sure. I know that, uh, recently, like that seven, oh, deck I mentioned, I was playing the full, uh, 18. I want to say with a calibrate, Mm -hmm. um, I don't think I'd generally play more than one calibrate just because, you know, um, you've already probably hit one or two of your relics and the second one's gonna be a lot less good. Yes. So.
0: That is very true. Yeah, I think that's actually the thing that sort of helped convince me in the lost episode is is the fact that when if you're using calibrate to replace a power and then you hit a power with your Calibrate. It feels like, oh, wow, you know, thanks to this Calibrate, I was able to hit a power. But since that Calibrate actually just replaced a power, it would have just been a power anyway. So it doesn't matter if you hit a power in your top five. Because, like, if, you, if that had just been a Sigil, you would have hit the Sigil. So it didn't actually help you find a power, which was like this mental this like mental leap for me. That really lowered Calibrate in my estimations. The thing that's always confusing about cards like Calibrate and Seek Power is how they interact with um, Eternals Mulligan rules and how that they sort of help you.
2: Well, let me well. see if I can help you a little bit. They they don't count as power in your opening hand. Yes. right? Um, so you have a chance if you're playing cards like calibrate and seek power of ending up with more, uh, power in your opening hand than average. Um, so you like, if that's something that you want in your deck, then it's good to play those cards. Uh, if you, if you have a card if you have a deck, say with a high curve where, um, you want to have a lot of power in your opening hand so that you can consistently play your more powerful cards on uh, as, as soon as you can then it's good to have cards like calibrate and seek power because then you're more likely to have that power when you need it um, but if think if you're playing an aggressive deck uh for one thing you don't want to be playing too many cards like uh that that cause power to come into play depleted which calibrate and seek power essentially do because uh, for obvious reasons you want to be playing on curve um, but also, you want less power in your opening hand. So I think that's more or less the effect that it has. It filters, like seek power, filters a card out of your not filter, um, strips a card out of your deck that you could, that you would top deck later. That's power. So you're not really drawing less power over the course of a game, but you have it. You have more up top. Mm-hmm. I think that's how it works.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's kind of interesting. It's like when you have a really top-end heavy deck, it almost feels like a calibrate or a seek power is being your 19th power is better than a 19th power because you're more likely to have three or four power in your opening hand after you mulligan. Yeah, I think that's accurate. Is that how you feel about it, Collector? Because I feel like this is true both in limited and in constructed for Eternal.
1: Yeah, like um, generally even if you uh, play the card like Seek Power, even in Constructed, you're still going to have a fair amount of power um, unless you're playing an aggro deck. Like your aggro decks might stick to 25 plus some Seek, so they really need the fixing. But the decks that curve larger will still play 28, 29 power.
2: And and just one last thing that I wanted to say about Calibrate is that it does put four of your next cards uh, on the bottom of your deck, which means that it doesn't play nice with uh effects like war cry or revenge um if you have if you have war cry in your deck calibrate is an anti-synergy with that since there's a really good chance that if you cast a calibrate you're putting your whatever uh whatever unit got the war cry bonus um at the bottom of your deck where you're never where you'll never draw it although i guess it's true too that um if the Warcry Cry bonus is on a Relic weapon, then you can draw it with Calibrate, but that seems like a lot of hoops to jump through, <laughs> um, and not very reliable. But it's really bad with Revenge, because um, then pretty good chance that the card that went, the unit that went into the top ten cards of your deck, is 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 going to be buried by Calibrate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so don't uh, don't don't overlap with those strategies. Calibrate's really good with Relic decks, which tend not to be Revenge or War Cry decks. So try not to mix those. So you're saying that Calibrate synergizes with the Shadow
1: Touch? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. (laughs) You give Calibrate Revenge, and yeah,
2: that's true. If you give Calibrate Revenge, then you draw two sigils or relics. That's pretty good. (laughs) I want to see that happen. I mean, I'll try it now. I'll try it when my chat encourages me to try it. That'll be fun. My card of the week is
0: Reforged, which is the four-fire sh- sorry, the four fire, um, the four fire spell that says draw a weapon from your void and give it plus t- or draw a weapon or relic weapon from your void and give it plus two plus two.
2: It doesn't have to be a relic weapon. It can be any weapon.
0: I I said weapon or relic Okay, oh, draw okay. a weapon. Okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dr- draw a weapon from your void and give it plus two plus two. This is always this is kind of a hard card for me to evaluate because it seems worse than soul drain smithing. Is that true? Would you rather have soul drain smithings than than reforged or is it just de- more dependent on
2: your deck? Uh, I think it's dependent on the deck to some degree. I like reforge a lot. If there's any chance that I'm going to be playing anything with any weapons at all, I take reforged pretty high. Mm-hmm. Uh And if it's with Relic Weapons, uh, I think it's especially good with Relic Weapons because giving plus two armor to a Relic Weapon means you might be able to use it more than once and then you're getting card advantage off of it. Like it can really snowball. So, uh, So yeah, I actually like reforge quite a bit. I tend to like reforge if I have a variety of weapons in my deck, including cheap ones, like reforging a Fury Blade is really quite good. Fury Blade costs one, and it starts out as a 2-1 Relic weapon. And if you can, on turn five, reforge a Fury Blade and then use it as a 4-3, that's usually a really good tempo play, and you can probably kill more than one thing with it. Um, Mm -hmm. And then if you're combining it with other ways of bringing weapons back, then that thing is plus 2, plus 2 permanently.
0: Yeah, I guess that's what I'm what I don't understand about the card. Because like playing this on a Fury's blade is like pretty good, but it's not that much better than uh the the five two weapon, right? Or you know, you're spending the same amount of power as the uh the treasure treasure blade, what is it called?
2: Uh Slayer's Edge?
0: Slayer's Edge, yeah. Yeah, yeah treasure blade, that's what I said. Uh (laughs) it says treasure on the card yeah exactly as like slayer's edge and i i mean like you're you are slightly more likely to get a two for one with a four three weapon but like i don't know just like reforge always feels so expensive to me and like a lot of the relic weapon decks these creation decks in this format are relying on cards like age of prof um edge of prophecy and shugo hook sword which is like Great if you can reforge them, but then you're spending like 11 mana, which is like a lot of time to, a lot of power to do that. I don't know. I just feel like a lot of the decks I've had with reforged in it, I, I feel like I'm dead because I have this reforged and I, I can't afford to take that much time off to get
2: these like big weapons back that could potentially win the game. Uh, I don't I think just- that you necessarily play it with uh, with a deck that's only playing those larger relic weapons, because I, mm-hmm. I agree, I don't think it's all that great with Shugo's Hook Sword or Edge of Prophecy. I think if you have, I think it's the kind of decks where you have a variety of weapons at your disposal, and Reforge can get one of them back, and then you have that uh, the same effect as Turn Back Time has, where you have this whole library of your void to choose from. So it's not just like, oh, well, my only plan is to bring back Edge of Prophecy as many times as possible. Um, That's why I almost always play at least uh, one Fury Blade in a deck where I know I have a Reforge, because uh, I've always got that option. Um, And it's not, like, if just Reforging a Fury Blade isn't crazy exciting by itself, it's the fact that that Reforge, if I don't need to do that, can apply to the Edge of Prophecy later on in the game.
1: Mm -hmm. Um,
2: It's just very versatile. But I wouldn't play it in a deck where I just had a couple of big game ending weapons at the end, I don't think, because then yeah, it's expensive and there's better ways to bring an edge of prophecy back from the void. I bring it back if I have options, you know. And that's and I have options because there's cards like Bladecrafter and Dragonforge that let me get whatever weapon I want, and then Reforge can bring that back. And, you know, it kinda of, things kinda of snowball. Okay.
0: So say you have your ideal deck. So you have a yeah. like a Fury Blade. You have, let's say, a Fury Blade, the 4-1 weapon, and then one or two of the big weapons. And you have two Soul Drain Smithings in your pool and two Reforges in your pool.
2: Okay, I would play Reforge over Soul Drain Smithing in that case.
0: You would play both
2: Reforges over... Okay. I would indeed. Yeah. Because if I'm I'm playing that kind of deck, I'm playing for maximum value. It's going to be a slow deck that I take over gradually, and Reforge is better for that purpose huh what do you think collector
1: uh so with that deck just described with only like the three weapons like i probably play one reforge that's it like i have a tendency to have cards like that stuck in my hand unable to do things too often for me to like them Um, so i don't tend to play them often
2: Oh, sorry, I was assuming that I had more weapons than just the three that you said there when oh. I answered. Oh. I'm sorry, that may, that's I, misleading. Even
1: if you have more weapons, uh, I'd still probably only play the one. Like um, Something like creature uh, recursion, I'm more likely to play because you play 15, 16 plus creatures, and so you almost always have a target for it. But, I don't know, too many games have just been beat down and with a reforge or smithing or something along those lines in my hand, and nothing to do with it it's too slow or just not no targets
0: hmm yeah see that's been much more my experience than the people who i've watched (laughs) (laughs) constantly succeeded with this deck um so well hats when you say you assumed i had more weapons is there like i know this is it's all a little bit deck dependent but is there like a number of weapons over which like a threshold where you'd go from one of these recursion effects to two of these recursion effects
2: uh, i'm gonna say something like uh if you count cards like Bladecrafter as a weapon because it's acting as multiple copies yeah of your weapons then i'm gonna say something like seven six seven in the six to eight range i think Hmm. wow that's a lot of weapons yeah it is but i've ended up in decks with that many weapons pretty often uh but we're not just talking about relic weapons like a lot of the time i get into this deck because i pick up an early master's blade or something like that you know mm-hmm. um and then like having the option to get either a relic weapon or a good creature weapon you know maybe it's maybe it's even something like surgeon's saw you know something good that i can put on a creature as well then that means i've got enough options for either my dragon or my blade Crafter or whatever that i um that the reforge is gonna continually give me a lot of value because I've got like all you need is like one or two really high quality weapons in your deck. And then you can tutor them and then you can get them back from your void. Um I've just had good success with it. Maybe I'm maybe this is mostly anecdotal because I have had a deck with two reforges in it and it went seven wins super easily. Um and maybe that wouldn't happen the next time I tried it, but I because I've had success with it, I've kinda gotta, gotta stick with what my experience has been telling me.
0: Yeah. No, I, I'm actually just really surprised that you guys would play Reforge over Soldier and Smithing. I don't know. I feel like the armor's nice, but Soldier and Smithing is just
2: like so much cheaper. It is. Um, anyway. it's, it's cheaper, but it gives a much smaller bonus. So, Yeah. yeah.
0: Sort of. I mean, especially if you're in a seven-weapon deck, it's... It's giving as much stats, probably. That's true.
2: Um, That's true. Overall, it is.
1: Even with it being cheaper, I'm often in the situation where I can't cast it and do my recursion target in the same turn anyway. Yeah.
0: Yes. I guess that's true, but then, I mean, the counterpoint to that is, of course, you are still more likely to be able to cast it and then play a second cheaper play. Yeah. but yeah, no, I, that, I, I, that's totally counter to how I would have, my instincts were. So I think that was a good discussion. Um, all right, so on to our 7-win run breakdown. This is our long-standing sta- data collection project at Farming Eternal, where our listeners mail us their 7-win drafts to farmingeternal at gmail.com. Or you can post them in our 7-win channel on the Farming Eternal Discord, either in exported deck lists or any kind of Eternal Warcry link. And uh, you guys missed this in our, our, in our last episode, but we did create a zero win channel so we could all commiserate together about our failing decks in this format. So please, you, if you want to post those, please post those too. Um, and then we take this information, we put it in some spreadsheets, we give a shout out to everyone who sent in a deck, we thank John Holio for entering all these lists, and we talk about it on the podcast. So first off, we have a bunch of new contributors this week. We have Alabazoo, Burglar, I'm So Bad, uh, as well as our veteran contributors, Allison, Argo Control, Celtic Guardian 7, Collector, Darth Herman 2, D-Dub, Eric G. Haugen, Fast Cookie, Gato Sujo, Hats on Lamps, John Holio, Johnny D. Lowell, Cassandreth, Mark E., Mercurial Blue, Nothership, Parmalee, Patomaru, Raven Dragon, Rofer, SSJ1997, Steve Irwin, Titus and Blossom, Twin Hex, Invader. And then for all of you who submitted a list two weeks ago, um, I read your name on the Lost episode and then didn't tell John Holio to include your names in this week's list. So um, you just have to know that we did read your name last
2: week. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) We do... We really do appreciate everyone who sends in <laughs> drafts <Yeah. laughs> to our to the spreadsheet, and we apologize for losing your names. Yes, just like I said, sorry about that. It was a technical error.
0: Yeah. Anyway, so this is our sort of our first seven one breakdown of this new. I guess we're calling this eight point five because the campaign just came out. So this is the calling? halfway point to okay. to nine. Okay, I'll buy that. Um. And uh, once again, time doing really well. It's in over 70% of decks. Uh, Shadow now is uh, solidly second in 55% of the decks. And the other three colors are in the 30 to 40 range. Um, Makes sense. Uh, Xenon seems to be the most prevalent color combination of decks. And the only other sort of quick hit thing I wanted to say is we've had a bunch of Karendon decks and... We are now averaging over three colors per deck, once again. Okay, and
2: Carendon is Time, Shadow, Justice?
0: Yes, it is. Um, and I think it's mostly just because there's Time and Shadow in that deck, and Justice happens to be along for the ride.
2: It's funny how we always come to the conclusion that Justice isn't a particularly good faction in this format, and yet it tends to be in all of the best archetypes anyway. Yes.
0: I mean, it is the lowest represented of the five colors currently, um, but I guess it, it does... I think it's just, in this format, it's still, there's so many good Combré cards that it kind of can go along with... <laughs> it, like, comes along with the ride uh, because time is so good.
1: Yeah. also has a fair amount of good support cards, which not enough, like good creature base to fill it out on its own, but can help fill out another deck. Yes. I agree. So,
0: yeah, I think we'll we'll learn more about this format as we get more decks. Uh, we have gotten a, a fair number. So far, already 60 decks. But um, we'll see if this changes. You know, because it feels like these last several changes, you know, they keep trying to tweak it so that they make time worse in the draft packs um but it that just doesn't seem like a a viable way to for in my opinion a a super viable way to balance the format because just time is so strong in echo eternity you'd have to make the draft packs i don't even know what you could do with the draft packs because you'd still be happy with your echoes of eternity time cards to then play time I think what
2: we're seeing is exactly what you would expect, is that people are still playing time, but now rather than playing two factions, they're playing three or four, because then they have to branch out in the draft. In the uh, They have they, they, they get into time in, in the first pack, and then in packs two and three, they kind of go into two other factions to make up for it, because it's hard to fill out their, their deck with time cards. And that's, what I, that's what's been happening to me. I, I'm not willing to give up on all the good time cards I got early on, but I still wanna have enough playables. so
0: so would you be saying this or are you saying in this last week or two you've been
2: tending towards three color decks
0: more than you had been?
2: I'm tending towards four and five color decks more than I had been mm-hmm. And I'm doing fine with them, yeah, usually the usually with a base of Combre, uh time and time and justice, and then splashing for other things.
0: That's interesting because I know there were a couple people on Discord like uh, Johnny D Lowell in at least in eight point whatever it was before this one, um, who were sort of extolling the virtues of two color decks.
2: Yeah, I think that if you can get into a good two color deck, then then it's fine. I, I just have been having more success uh, with with three and four color lately. Yeah, um, and have, because not because. That two two faction decks are inherently weak, but because I'm having a hard time building a strong two faction deck, there's just mm-hmm. not enough good playables unless I get lucky and get in the right lane right from the beginning of the draft.
0: But And you're finding the power to support that? Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you end up you have like a Waystone Gate or something and then you're good. Do you have any thoughts on this uh, two to three to four plus faction argument in this format collector
1: uh not too much i haven't gotten a chance to really go over your guys's numbers on what's popping up i'm like a little surprised of how much uh shadow there is because just i don't think i've seen that much in my drafts personally but i guess Mm -hmm. you know people are submitting that that's what they're running into so
0: yeah i mean this is just in the last two weeks with this like current since um whisper what does the new campaign called "Whispers of the Throne."
2: Yeah, "Whispers of the Throne."
0: Oh yeah. Since "Whispers of the Throne" came out, and you know, the major change obviously is they added Death Strike, which does improve um, Shadow a lot in the draft packs. Obviously, so I—I I mean, I have a feeling it's that. And Aramot's Machinations is one of the best cards in EchoVote echoes of eternity so right that's like a pretty good reason
2: to end up in shadow um yeah so along along with all of the other shadow uncommons basically all of the shadow uncommons are 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 good to great so i think knowing that you're you're going to be backed up by your draft packs can let you sort of go into shadow and then stay there with with confidence so makes some sense i don't think consuming greed which was the common that they added last time makes that big a difference it's pretty busted with certain cards as we've discussed before but um that by itself wouldn't make the difference but the fe- death strike plus um just the fact that shadow was always on the verge of being great in echoes of eternity probably makes the difference i'm not sure I also could be skewing the our our spreadsheet all by myself since I've been drafting Stone's car and fell <laughs> a lot, so that might be doing it,
0: yeah, no, well, it's not really because, like I said, Xenon is the yeah. number one drafted color pair, so other people are having the same kind of success, yeah um
2: I guess, all right, so. Shall we move on to the main topic? Let's do So our main topic is is kind of a go-back-to-basics topic to some degree. Uh, It's about building a power base. How do you do it? Um, And uh, I think a lot of people... This is one of the aspects of Eternal that can be confusing for new players. Um, Because there's sort of... I think a lot of the experienced drafters uh, have come to a general consensus about how to build a power base. But may, it might be a little bit obtuse, like why? Uh, so, I just thought I'd get into the basics of uh, of how of, of my thought process, and we can all uh, we can all jump on, jump in um, on and and say what our own process is for it because uh, I have it kind of down, kind of down to a shorthand now in my head um but there's but when i tried to write down what my process for building a power base actually was it turned out that there were an awful lot of individual steps that i'm now going through automatically so i thought i'd write them down and then say them out loud here we go so the first question is how much power you run in a draft deck you get 45 cards and you want to have enough power to be able to play your cards. But you don't want to play so much power that you flood often and are top-decking sigils when you need to be drop top-decking cards that actually do things. Um, and I have settled on usually playing 18 power in my decks uh, in, in a regular sort of draft deck with a curve, with uh, some 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 2-cost stuff, some 3-cost stuff. Uh, of some fewer cards as we go up. So there's fewer four costs, fewer five costs, and then maybe only one or two, six or seven drops. 18 sigils usually gets you through um, that pretty well. And there's always a tension between uh, running uh, that, running like uh, too many power cards or running too few power cards. But over time, my experience has shown me that I'm most comfortable with 18. If you look at the numbers You tend to get five power when you reach turn five, uh, if you're on the play, about 46% of the time, meaning that you'll be able to play a five power card on turn five, on curve. If you're playing 18 power in your deck, nearly half of the time, um, and most decks don't have to be able to play a a five-power card on curve, but are happy to play a five-power card on curve. You've probably got one in hand, so that's a comfortable place to be. You also get uh, four-power on curve about 63% of the time, roughly two-thirds of the time. Um, And you usually want to be able to play your four-power cards on curve, but usually it's not vital. So again, it's a comfortable place to be. Uh, And you're able to play your three-power cards on curve uh, about seventy-nine percent of the time, around eighty percent of the time, and again, that's uh, uh, not ideal. You'd like to be able to one hundred percent of the time be able to play your three power cards on turn three, but it's co- it's about as comfortable as you can reasonably expect to get. You can always err on the side of playing nineteen or twenty, and then you ra- uh, you raise all of those percentages by roughly four to seven percent. Um, but then you're running the risk of flooding again and uh you might not need to so 18 just feels right and the numbers back that up so that's why i do it do you play do you play 18 power collector
1: for the most part yeah i think you kind of covered a lot of it um if i'm playing like a bunch of cards to either generate power on their own or go and fetch power i might like cut it down to 17. Um, I rarely ever go any lower than that. I'd probably have to have, like, a deck that's curved out at 3 to hit 15 or 16. Um, and I have occasionally gone higher, which I assume we'll talk about a little later. But Yeah,
2: we will. Yeah, I think most people who have played a lot of draft have kind of settled down at 18, 18. Um, uh, I hear some disagreement about it sometimes, but that seems to be the conventional wisdom, and I'm not going to disagree with it, because I do pretty well at draft, and I'm, that's that's the baseline that I'm starting with. So once I've constructed my deck, uh, I usually start with that base assumption. I'm going to be playing 18 power, and then I adjust up and down based on the uh, the makeup of the actual deck. I'm, I'm pretty hardline about cards like Seek Power and Calibrate. I count them as an entire power and take a sigil out of my deck if I can at all. Even Calibrate, uh, which means sometimes I have to go fetch a Sigil instead of a Relic off of my Calibrate because I need it. But I still would prefer that to the times when I Flood because I'm playing too much power. Uh, But that's just me and i can easily imagine good arguments against doing it that way so i tend to take out a power uh, a power card ever for every card that's just literally draw power like seek power or calibrate um If I have a lot of Decimate cards in my deck, or cards that really only are good if you Decimate with them, and that's basically we're talking about the Conjuring cards, Wind Conjuring, Water Conjuring, Fire Conjuring. They're playable cards if you don't Decimate, but really the reason why you took them so high is because you know that you're going to be able to Invoke off of them, which means that you have to reduce your total, your max power by one. Um, If I've got... If I've got uh, at least two uh, Decimate cards in my deck, I'll probably add another power because uh, one of the things I really hate in Limited is if I need to Decimate and I can't. So again, I'm pretty strict about my Decimates uh, in in adding power to my deck. Uh, If I have a lot of expensive cards at six power or more, I'll put in an additional power to be able to play those. And I'm talking like three cards that cost six or more. and if I have like a lot of cards that cost six or more, which does happen in this format, if I'm playing a bunch of like big old relic weapons and other stuff, then I'll be happy to play twenty power and start there. Uh, and then if I have a bunch of pledge cards, let's say three or more pledge cards, those are cards that can be played as a power on the first turn. I'll cut a power from my deck, and then that uh, you do make all of those adjustments up and down. I'm probably forgetting one or two, uh, and that's kind of the basic number of power cards sources of power that i'm going to be playing in my deck uh is that more or less what you do
0: well i i kind of want to dig in a little deeper on a couple of these points so with the each card that simulates a power Mm -hmm. so how far do you take that so like say you have a deck with two seeks and a calibrate are you playing 15 power in that deck plus your two
2: seeks and a calibrate in a i am Uh, And I know that that doesn't sound right, but uh, that is what I do. It's what I've been doing in this format, and it's been working like a charm. So I'm probably going to keep doing it. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, that's with the knowledge, like we were talking about before, how if you're playing an aggressive or tempo deck that really needs to be playing on curve, uh, then you have to keep in mind that uh, three of your power sources are going to be coming into play depleted, which means maybe you don't want to do that. Uh, Maybe Mm -hmm. you want to play more undepleted power to make up for that, or maybe just not play as many seek powers. I've cut seek powers from aggro decks because it's essentially depleted power, and I maybe didn't have stringent influence requirements. Uh, So that's a factor, right? Uh, How uh, aggressive your deck is. But if you are playing a defensive deck that can stabilize consistently, yeah, I'll just take. I'll I'll go straight down to 15 power um, because I have because I've got so much virtual power in the deck hmm we did that with the deck that we drafted together in fact we went down to 15 power on that one and we went 7-1 with it
0: yes no I definitely have done this and this is actually one of the reasons I wanted um uh to have collector on the show because I had another deck like this before and streamed it and then I got a browbeat by collector for running 15 power and two seeks and a calibrate I think and so And I kind of had just assumed um, that that was sort of standard practice and was just I found it really interesting that a player of collector's uh, caliber would sort of disagree with what I had what I considered to be sort of standard practice. So I kind of wanted to hear more of his opinions on where he he landed in in such debates.
1: So. I'm kind of in the cap that I would rather lose a game to flooding out than I would to just not drawing enough power and not being able to cast my cards and actually play the game. Um, maybe it's because of like, you know, I, I don't want to like brag or whatever, but skill level compared to some other drafters and like the format, you can often maneuver around them a little bit or your cards are sometimes just a little stronger and you can Build your advantage through like, you know, them having to two for one your four-four with a you know two two-twos or just any kind of other way to get a two for one that even if you do draw a few more power, you can tend to still play through them.
0: And so I guess this is taking this the other way. So like how far would you take that? So if you did have a deck with like two seeks and a calibrate, are you still playing 18 power or are you considering any of them? to be sort of equivalent to a power.
1: So, I mean, like, if I'm playing the Calibrate, it's probably because it's a deck that I put a lot of Relics into that I want to be trying. So I'm probably, like, sticking at about 17 power in that deck.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: So it's closer to, like, a...
0: so So you're saying it's, like, closer to, like, a half or a third of a power in your mind.
1: Yeah, it Calibrates my Impulse to give me my, like a Waystone Gate or my Edge of Prophecy or, you know, whatever I'm looking for. And uh, the Seek powers are actually, like, the, you know, half half a power, you know, am not sure. I've never really quantified it before. i just gone with what looked right.
0: That's interesting. I think it's, it's, like, these are the numbers you discussed above, but one of the things with with Eternal is because, like, 18 power is the standard, and I think we've talked about this on the cast before but like just based on like magic the gathering 18 power is lower than you would expect your power requirements to be and so you know when you use like a a shift stoned or whatever you know your percentages always seem so much worse (laughs) than than you would think they would be and this is one of the things that always you know i don't know i've always had trouble with when building power bases is because I kind of have the urge to play more power, but then, but then the general consensus is to sort of play less power, and I feel like there are more people playing seventeen power than nineteen power in Eternal, and it, I don't know. There's just like a lot of a lot of factors going and uh, you know going on when building a
2: power base. It's kind of fascinating to me. Yeah, Yeah. hence why we're doing this episode.
0: Yeah, and I think even, you know, it's like, I think, hats. you are, on average, you play more power than, I think, say, the average drafter. And then, Collector, you play (laughs) even more power than that. And both of you are, I think, very good drafters, so...
2: Yeah, I I think that... um... There's, there's a lot going on there because uh, it's true that if, uh, like, a good drafter um, uh, with more power at their disposal is probably going to be able to tactically outplay their opponent who has less power at their, their disposal and so make up for the flood. But there's also the fact that you can recover from power screw, but you can't really recover from power flood. Like, if you are power screwed for most of the game, and then you finally, and you're able to survive, and then finally draw into power, you have a car. you have a handful of cards that do things. But if you flood, you literally don't have cards that do things. Uh, and so there's nothing you can do to make up for that. Um, so if you take away the skill level of the player from the equation, you'd much rather be screwed than flooded.
1: There's that word, though, you said, survive. Like yeah. I know it always depends on the format. Some formats will let you skimp on power a little bit more than others but you have to be able to survive to get out of that screw and some formats that we've had it was just you'd be dead on turn five if you miss
2: yeah absolutely uh which really makes a lot of the arguments that we're making for and against uh things format dependent i think that this format is is still difficult to draft aggressively although it's gotten a lot easier and so that's why i'm comfortable playing less power in this format than i was in the last one which was a ridiculously aggressive format sometimes uh because i'm pretty confident that i'll be able to play a three drop and 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 uh and negate all of my opponents two drops for at least a couple of turns until i can draw into more power there's another factor here which I was going to get into later, but uh, let's get into it now, which is the whole concept of flood insurance, uh, meaning that cards, certain cards, um, can spend power for value, uh, such as uh, Gravewatch Ancestor, which is a three power, two three that uh, with an ultimate ability where you spend six power to make it grow, uh, based on uh, to grow to a size based on uh, the largest. Unit in your void. Uh, that's flood insurance because if you draw more sigils, you still have value in that card. Uh, the classic ex- example would probably be something like and Guardian, which was a 4 cost 3 3 with endurance, but when you reached 8 power, you could spend 8 power to make it an 8 8 um, with endurance. So you never felt bad about drawing sigils because you could uh, take over the game at that point if your Xenon Guardian had survived. Uh, and I uh in this format I think there's less flood insurance than average. Um I there's not there there isn't a mechanic like spellcraft where you can spend additional power to uh, to for a card to give you a better effect. There's nothing like amplify. There are only a handful of cards that want you that give you the option of playing them effectively on several different turns. And yeah. so uh that's why i've been playing a little bit bit less power in this format than in other formats uh is is that there's so much less flood insurance Mm -hmm. there are a handful of cards that such as the cards that get things back from the void that i kind of count in the flood insurance category like turn back time is essentially play a card from your void but pay extra pay three more for it um but uh not enough so that i feel comfortable playing too much power the way that i felt in the last format when you were playing stuff like spike tip kieran and you had all and you for most of the format you had a lot of spellcraft cards and stuff so there was almost always something to do with the power
1: i'd have to actually go through and look at each archetype to see how much um you know power sinks there actually are but i have like not really felt that way. Like between like Wand, Sky Worshiper, Majestic Skies, Gravewatch, Ancestor. Uh, a lot of these Time cards, but you know, Time is the most played color, right?
2: Yeah. Um,
1: like all those are really good power There um, You know, some ones like the uh, two-four Killer Rare. I forgot the name of it. Um,
2: but, yeah, Brutal yeah. Sky Lord or something like that. Yeah. Right.
1: I think that's it. Um, I, they exist, like you said. They're probably a little more rare than some, in some other formats.
0: Yeah, well, I yeah, it's actually kind of interesting Frostlord. that, um, Hats said that because I feel like when you look at this format on paper, you you would want more power in this format, um, because like you said, I do think there are you know like we meant like Hats mentioned above, you know, all the conjuring's all the invoke cards are power sinks, or all the decimate cards. Sorry, all the decimate cards are essentially a power sink, because you're using a power in order to play them. I, I guess I would call them a, a power sink, in a sense. Yeah, yeah, they are. They count. And then also, this format has a lot of double influence cards, which I think are want more power in order to make sure you hit all your influence a lot of the time. Some of the time.
1: That's I true. I agree with that.
0: Yeah. And then also... On to your third point, which I did want to ask you a couple more questions on, was the having three or more cards at six power. I feel like a lot of my decks have a tend to end up having a lot of cards at six power or more in this oh, format. I would, I would recommend playing uh, nineteen power then. Yeah, and and I guess I did want to uh, ask. So, do do you feel like? <laughs> This is kind of a weird question, but like that that three number is true. Because I feel like every single deck I draft in this format has three cards at six or more power. Um, and I guess I'm surprised that you used such a, a, a low number there based on my experience in the draft format. And knowing that not all of your decks are 19 power, even though you do run 19 power sometimes.
2: Uh, yeah I, I mean that's it's a, it's kind of a ballpark number it was just sort of the um the feeling that I had i want to look at the i want to look at the chart here um that uh that I imported for this purpose so uh, if you have eighteen power in your deck the chances that you're going to have six power on turn six are uh thirty one percent so on the, play. on the play uh so roughly a third of the time and uh, and then if, uh, if another turn goes by, 41%. And then if another turn goes by, uh, 52%. So you've got about a 50-50 chance of having your, your, your 6 power by turn 8. Uh, if you need... It, it kind of depends on what your 6-drops are. So the, uh, if you need to play them on curve, like if they're aggressive 6-drops, like uh, Champion Grappler or something like that, Uh, you want to definitely be able to play them on curve as much as possible. If they're cards like Edge of Prophecy, where you can stabilize the board with them, so you don't necessarily need to play them on curve, then it's a little bit less important, but still you want to play them as soon as possible. I don't know. I think I'm equivocating a little bit, but once you get to like six power, you're down to only a 30% chance of being able to play your cards on curve. Which means that all of the cards that are above, um, that that cost six or more, need to have um, kind of a huge impact on the game.
1: Uh, There must be a Magic Article I read before. I wish you could find it. I think it was Frank Carson, but like six is so much more than five, and seven is even more than six when it comes to actually drawing the power on time to play your things. That the higher the curve card... The more impactful it needs to be, the more it needs to be yep. able to either stabilize you or push you so far ahead that it wins you the game uh, yep. it needs to be.
2: Yeah, and also you're increasing the number of cards in your... You, cards. Games of uh, Eternal or Magic are won by card advantage. Uh, th- this is the point that I wanted to make. Um, and if you are an aggressive deck, then your card advantage is the cards that are left in your opponent's hand that they were unable to play in a sense, in a virtual kind of a way. You're gaining card advantage by making the cards in your opponent's hand obsolete. And if your opponent has cards in their hand that are too expensive to play, they're obsolete anyway. You don't want to end up with a, uh, with a hand full of cards that you're not going to be able to play until later in the game. Um, and the more cards that uh, cost six or seven in your hand, the much more chance that you're going to be looking at those cards for most of the game and not playing them. So, uh, if you want to mitigate that issue, um, as soon as you start, I, I fight in this format to play only a couple of cards that cost six or seven. And so I, I often end up with uh, curves that only have like a couple of six or seven drops and everything else is five or less. And that may be just the way that I draft this format, but it's why I'm comfortable playing 18 or 17 power. The few times that I've reached, that I've played like really heavy relic weapon decks, and they've been very, very strong decks, and I usually win with them, I go immediately to 19 or 20 power because I know how important it is to be able to get those things out and get them into play because they're my entire plan for winning. Um, And that's... uh, yeah that's that's kind of the situation i think if you're ending up with a lot of six or seven drops then you have to be considering playing a lot more power um and and by a lot i mean one or two more power but it feels like a lot especially if you're top decking it or you're flooding uh but that's uh that's just sort of kind of the situation like a lot of like if you're playing like two seek powers and uh, a calibrate or like then I'm still gonna count all three of those as power, but if I'm playing them in a relic heavy deck, probably that deck I'm counting in my mind as a 20 power deck uh, a baseline. And so I'm subtracting three from that and playing 17 power, you know? Mm-hmm. It's not that I'm playing 15 power because I'm always starting at 18 and going down to 15. If I'm playing a relic heavy deck, it's probably it probably needs a lot of power. And so that's why I feel comfortable just counting counting all of the the seek powers and calibrates his power inherently let's go to my next point my next point (laughs) is probably something that i already said just now which is uh let's see oh no no we're done uh with that yeah yeah Yeah, we did it we did one. great uh, the next, uh, the next question is how much influence do you play? Um, and there's a similar tension here where every time you play one color of influence, one faction's influence, you're playing less of another faction's influence unless you're playing, of course, dual, uh, cards such as seat, uh, seats or banners or tokens, uh, cards that give you more than one influence. Um, and so, uh, This is the big reason why you normally want to be playing two factions uh, is that it's pretty easy to get your influence requirements for two factions. And it becomes much harder as soon as you introduce a third, and even harder than that if you introduce a fourth or a fifth. Um, I think the easiest way to start deciding how many of each influence to put in your deck is identify exactly how much influence you need in order to play everything in your deck. Let's say you need two time influence to play uh, your, your uh, humbug nest. You need two primal to play your brood of Aramot. And you need a justice in order to splash your, uh, uh, your um, uh, display of uh, tradition, which requires time primal justice. Just to make this a little complicated. So the total there is you need two time, two primal, and one justice. Probably you want to have sigils, more or less, you want to have an equal number of time sigils, primal sigils, um, and then about half that many for justice. That's a base way of looking at it. And And then after that, figure out how important it is to play your cards on curve, which means probably you've got two main factions and that's where most of your units are. Um, and you want to be able to play those on curve, so you need to have the influence on curve. Uh, the units that are establishing your board presence in the early and mid game, you, you want to consistently have uh, those uh, those car the influence for those cards and be able to play them as soon as possible. So in this example, you're playing your humbug nest, you're playing your broods of Aramot, but you're splashing justice for a couple of things. So maybe you take out a couple of those justice influence the justice sigils and you put in a couple more time uh, a couple more primal and then uh and then also think how aggressive is your deck and uh and that will tell you how consistent your influence has to be because it's even more important to be able to play cards on curve so maybe take your splash color down even a little bit more if you're playing an aggressive or tempo oriented deck play a little bit more of your main factions um and that's how you will end up with a more or less correct uh, spread of Sigils. Uh, if you want to take this to another level while you're drafting, think about what your main faction is and try to draft so that your uh, cards aren't going to conflict with each other. The classic example for me in this format is Burning Cord Drake, which is a three power Uh, aggressive card, it's a 3-1 flyer, it requires two fire influence, which means that on turn three you need to have two fire influence to be able to play your 3-1 aggressive creature on curve. That means that if you're playing anything that requires more than one influence in any other faction, it's going to actively fight with you being able to play your burning cord drake. So as soon as you're thinking, I'm probably going to want to play one or more burning cord drakes in your deck, then you want fire to be your base color. And even if you're playing two factions, you want the influence requirements for those other factions to be light, if possible. It's not always possible to make your influence work exactly the way you want, but um, you, it's, it's something to keep in mind while you're drafting. And I think it's one of the keys to, uh, to being a great drafter rather than a good drafter is making tough picks during the draft based on what the influence requirements of your deck are looking like they're going to be uh, in the end. So even in a multi-faction format like this one, uh, especially before the changes, uh, I am still always trying to draft a one-faction deck with a secondary faction that's splashing any other cards that I need uh, to some degree, and then I build the final power base with that in mind so there's one dominant color. Uh, one dominant faction and then another and then a supporting faction and then I see how much I actually need to play in order to play the colors the the cards that I want to splash at bare minimum uh, and and what that approach gets you is that you are going to be able to play most of your cards most of the time. Um, there's always going to be situations where you can't play some of your cards because you haven't drawn the influence for them but you're in a position so that most of your deck is working uh in general and then there's going to be cases where uh things sometimes don't line up and you just have to accept those so collector when when you're drafting this is kind of a a
0: tangential point but when you're drafting like the physical process are you building your deck in in the draft pool thing Like, as you draft to, like, get a sense of, like, what your deck's looking at, like, what your influence is. This is, like, a a thing that I feel like is a difference between when I watch Eternal streamers and a lot of Magic streamers. Where I feel like Magic streamers are constantly, like, creating their deck as they draft. While Eternal streamers tend to just, like, more or less just, like, draft their pool of cards and then build their deck at the end. Well, I think a lot of magic streamers tend to like they end and their pool is like is like 25, 23 or 24 cards and they just have like one or two cuts to make. While I feel like in Eternal, I don't know, pe- people go at it differently.
1: Right. I that. think I kind of what you're saying like um, I have a strong magic background and drafting and whatnot. Uh, I used to stream magic a bit. Don't don't anymore. But uh you know, that, that is there. But um, oftentimes, like, you know, assuming I'm actually, like, invested in drafting, I will go through and, like, cut cards as I'm drafting it. Like, okay, I'm never going to play this two-drop. You know, just put it in the sideboard immediately. Um, things like that. And, like, Hats was saying earlier, uh, you know, making sure, like, looking at your influence while drafting is important. Like, I've passed Humbug's form because while I'm in time, all of my time so far single influence and, like, you know, Humbug's form, it's not a card you want to be playing on turn five, like most of the time. You want it on three, or you don't want it at all, because, um, you know, you'll ambush something early with it. Uh, and so, like, you know, I'll pass it for a maybe slightly weaker card, but that is either single faction or, um, you know, just fits better with what I'm doing. Uh, and as far as building everything while I'm going, like, yeah, that often happens, um, you know. The curve gets looked at, um, you know. Influence gets looked at. You know what my overall game plan to try to win is. You know needs to be considered while actually picking cards. Um, although if it's like 2 a.m. and I'm not really caring, I'll just pick the best card of each faction and build it at the end. But.
2: <laughs> Hope this works. Do you find? Do you do you think that the way that a limited format is built in Magic and the way that it's built in Eternal contributes to the way? Um, just sort of that difference like where it feels more like you're building a deck while you're drafting a a magic draft deck than an eternal draft deck like maybe there's more uh, i haven't drafted magic in a while but it feels like maybe synergies were a little bit more obvious and linear in in uh, magic draft formats than in eternal to some degree
1: yeah i feel like magic drafts like it depends on the sort of format, obviously, but they often have a bit stronger theme of what you're doing. Um, like back in original Theros, like you were heroic, you wanted your one, one, two drops that said heroic on them, and then just anything that targeted them. So you do like, exactly what you're going for, and it was kind of really easy to slot into like that lane. Um, Eternal doesn't really have that. Like they kind of try to do it. Like they kind of try to make the sacrifice deck with this set. And, you know, the weapon deck with, um, you know, the new one. And, I mean, they kind of succeeded with it. Like, people do draft weapons and play them in, you know, that faction combination. But it's more just because the weapons are really strong, like, um, to play as their top end. It's not because there's enough synergy around the weapon to, like, oh my god, like, I have to just force all the weapons because, you know, I picked up these six supporting cards that, you know, Mm -hmm. um, go tremendous with them. Yeah
2: yeah I think that's just gonna be true of eternal because um, there some sets have stronger theming than others but I don't think any of it ever really approaches the the uh, the way that magic has been approaching their draft formats it's just different and in a way it's more subtle uh, like there's a lot of connections between cards but they're not explicit so you kind of there's more to discover on your own um, but it does mean that I often end up with a lot of tough cuts at the end of a of an Eternal draft because I've got plenty of playables and no clear direction for a deck.
1: Yeah, Magic will often have, like, two or three cards I need to cut. Eternal often have, like, at least five or six that I need to yeah. figure out what I'm doing with.
0: This, is, like I said, it was very tangentially related to influence requirements, but in my mind they sort of relate because that is, like, a thing that's... It's really hard to get a sense of, like, what your deck's actual influence requirements are unless you really have an idea of what 20 cards so far you're
2: actually going to play. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, there. although uh, it, it's true that Eternal doesn't have as strong theming as, as Magic does when it comes to Limited, um, sometimes you'll have an idea about like a third of the way through your draft of what you're generally trying to do, and that does make your picks easier. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say about like a third of the decks that I draft have that happen. And the other two thirds, I'm just taking good cards and trying to settle on some factions and then trying to play those good cards at the end and making five or six really tough cuts. Um, so I wanted to give some practical advice for splashing. Um, how many sigils you play if you're splashing. Like, you've decided on your two main uh, factions, uh, and those are set. But you have a couple of really powerful cards in a third faction, and you want to play them. Let's say there's one card in a third faction, and it only needs one uh, influence of that. Like, you're splashing, uh, you're splashing a, a seer, uh, which just needs one fire influence. Um, I would play three sources of that influence in that faction, and that counts all of uh, the tokens and unfamiliar interlopers, strangers, anything that can make that fire influence in my deck. Uh, I count how many ways I have to do that, and then add a number of fire sigils to reach uh, three. Because three uh, means that you're probably not going to be able to play that seer early, but also you're not planning to play that seer early. You're planning to play it whenever you get the ability to do it. If I have two cards that I'm splashing, both of them only require one uh, one of that faction's influence. Then I'll try to have four sources uh, of fire influence. In this case, uh, f- uh, for three cards, I try to have five sources, and then after that, I start treating it as just a full third faction and try to um, and try to lay out the the uh, uh, try to figure out what the influence requirement requirements are, and then provide proportionate. Uh, influence for those three factions it gets a lot it gets more complicated once you get up to four factions and five factions but that's where i start i try to have three sources if i'm going to play the faction at all and then count up incrementally the more cards i'm playing in those uh, in those factions and that's just my and that's just my approach uh and it works pretty well but there's a little bit of give and take depending on how vital it is that i play those cards on curve or or early on or if i can wait to play them later in the game um and therefore i can wait to acquire the influence to be able to play them what's your approach collector
1: uh this is very similar to mine um for splashing like you're saying the light third color um i'll often do three or four influence for it um it might go that might go up a little bit if I have more than just one or two cards. Um, but as far as they go, like, uh, my light splash uh, color, I often want the cards to be ones that will be impactful almost no matter when I play them in the game. Because um, oftentimes with only, like, the three power sources, you just won't be playing that on curve. You won't be playing it on three or four. Um, it probably won't be till six, seven, you know, at least. Um, so you want to make sure it's going to still have an impact, you know, even if you have to play it late.
2: And that's, uh, I think, that's the important, uh, the most important thing about splashing. Um, if you're, if you're a little less experienced and you're getting into drafting, uh, if if you're don't splash powerful cards that you need to play early. Like there's cards like, uh, like I think a good example would be Teething Welp, which is a two, uh, a two fire, two two. Uh, that gets very dangerous if it um, gets to attack unimpeded. Uh, it's a very powerful card, but you really want to play it on turn two, and it's not very powerful if you play it later. Like If you play a Teething Whelp on turn six, probably the board is such so it won't be able to make an unimpeded attack, and it's never going to be able to turn into the 5-5 five, five flyer that it's always wanted to be. Uh, so it's, it's sort of uh, the ultimate card that's powerful enough to splash, but you never want to
1: splash it. Um, Even turn three can be too late for Welp a lot
2: of the time. Exactly, exactly. It's a card that you need to play on curve. Um, so somewhere between Teething Welp and Seer, mm-hmm. which is a card that you can play at any time of the game and have it be impactful, uh, is the spectrum of cards that you want to splash. And you want them to be closer to the Seer end than the Teething Welp end. All right. and So how yeah. much of your power should be depleted, Hatsh? Well, that's. Uh, I think we've touched on that a couple of times. Again, there's a tension between the versatility of cards like Seek Power and the tokens, which can give you different colors of influence, and uh, the importance of playing your cards as early as possible. And I don't have any strict guidelines for this. Uh, I take it deck by deck, but it definitely depends on how much I think I'm going to be attacking with this deck and how much I'm going to be attacking earlier. The more aggressive my deck is, the less I want my power to come into play depleted. And so that's going to strongly influence how much I want to play tokens or how much I want to even splash for a third color at all. I'll take out a third color more commonly if I'm playing an aggressive deck because it's that much more important to be able to play my cards quickly and easily um, and not wait for the influence to be able to play them. So... um, there's, there's a more subtle thing uh, that I wanted to touch on quickly. Uh, your your power curve, which is sort of the count of how many cards you have uh, that, that at each cost level, how many two-cost cards you have, how many three, how many four, um, the smoother that curve is, the less likely I want to play depleted power, because I know I'm going to want an undepleted power on turn two, I'm going to want an undepleted power on turn three, another one on a turn four, etc., Uh, But if I've got a lot of 2-drops and a lot of 4-drops, but hardly any 3-drops, I might throw a couple of tokens into that deck because I know that I can play them on turn 3 and then play another 2-drop rather than playing a 3-drop on that turn because I don't have that many 3-drops. That's kind of a subtle thing that's not going to come into play a lot because usually uh, power curves are fairly smooth. But if it's the difference between playing a token or not playing a token, it's one more thing that you can look at.
1: So... I'm not opposed to playing tokens just to make sure you hit your influence requirements. In aggro decks, like Hats was saying, it's uh, something you probably don't want to do. You don't want to be playing the tokens just because you want to play everything on curve to kill them. So that way they don't get to you know, drop their cards and overwhelm you. Because generally the aggro cards, while aggressive early, just don't have the staying power to keep going through the late game. But... um any get that, that goes a little bit slower. Um, I'm tend to I tend to be happy to play the token just to make sure I can hit my influence. Um, just things like ancient manual where you know they don't provide you with the influence you want and they're depleted. The I don't like um, that, <laughs> <laughs> a card that's bad in all ways. Don't yeah, me. right. <laughs> um, but the tokens will give you what you're actually looking for when you need it, and you can generally find a turn off to play it, whether or not it's. Um, turn 1, which they can be awkward things you might not be sure what influence you actually need turn 1, but you can generally find a turn to just drop a 2-drop and play your token, or like drop a 3-drop and play your token, while not, you know, falling too far behind by doing that.
2: Yeah, I try to limit my depleted power to about 3 per deck if I can, Um, but that's just sort of a general guideline, because yeah, if you have a defensive deck that's playing uh, 3 or 4 factions and... Uh, you think you're pr- probably going to be able to stabilize uh, to make up for any loss in tempo that that playing you know depleted power early on uh, gives you. Then, then yeah, play anything that you need to be able to consistently get the influence that you need. So yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And this is another area where with like depleted power, where actually having more power makes depleted power less painful because you're more likely to have undepleted power to then find a spot to play your depleted power right right right, exactly so like all these factors sort of work together and this is one of
2: the reasons why building like the perfect power base is uh, difficult yeah it's tricky it's like a whole separate skill in a way to the drafting that you can develop on your own uh, that you can develop on its own that it can develop on its own it's like Mm -hmm. a whole separate skill that can develop on its own with your help (laughs) <laughs> right. so finally uh really what all of this is leading up to is deciding what your main game plan is like how are you going to win games and then build the power base to support that so for example if you have burning cordrakes which we uh which we discussed earlier if you have two or three burning drakes which need to fire on turn three build your deck so that you have to fire on turn three and other things are secondary because you're going to be winning games with those drakes and other cards that do similar things to those drakes and support them if you are trying to play your edge of prophecy um and then recur it you want to consistently be able to make it up to turn seven so either play more power so that you can consistently get to turn seven uh just through playing power or play a lot of defensive cards so that you'll have time to draw that power whenever you draw it Um, and if you have a ton of two and three drops and Uh, it's not really that important for you to be able to play anything more expensive than that, then shave as many power as you can off of your deck so that you're drawing more two and three drops and not drawing power that you don't need. Uh, A lot of deck-building decisions, uh, including your power base in Eternal, come down to figuring out, hey, how am I going to win these games? And do the decisions that I'm making support that? Uh, Then I'm probably making the right decisions. Um, And that is true in this case as well. It's not always easy to identify your game plan, and maybe you have more than one, um, but it's a useful thing to ask yourself if you're ever wondering like, hey, what are my cuts here, and do I need to take out a fire sigil and put in a justice sigil, or like, what other finicky thing do I need to do? Uh, Just sit back and ask yourself, what's my main plan? Um, and, uh, and, And does the decision I'm making contribute to that or take away from it? And sometimes that will give you the clarity that you're lacking. I think that
0: was an excellent excellent segment, excellent summation of how to build power bases. Um, we have mentioned it a couple times, but I do think Shift Stoned is a good place to go if you sort of want to get a sense of what your power requirements are and how much power you need to do it. They'll give you a lot of numbers to look at so you can kind of get a sense of like where your deck needs
2: to be. Yeah, that's. Is that shiftstoned.com? Or? It is shiftstone I think. So yes, uh, yeah, that's a that's a good resource. You can um, you can export your deck that you're working on in Eternal, copy it into Shiftstone, and it will give you percentages on how likely you are to be able to draw the influence you need at any given point in the game. So if if it's, if it's all seeming very confusing, Shiftstone can give you like starting numbers to work with, so you get a better idea of, uh, of of how your deck is likely to work when you put it into play. So what should I do with this deck? <laughs> so Patrick has a deck, um, and it's small, so I'm going to have to make it larger. Oh my yeah. god. Oh, nope, now it's gone. So let me undo
1: that. There we go, it's back. I'm just zooming in on the screen, so... I don't know how to do that. (laughs) Uh, Hold control and use your scroll wheel to scroll up. Okay, all right. Well, that's working fitfully. Oh, goodness, I did it way too
2: much.
0: Okay. Well, the reason I kind of wanted to talk about this deck was twofold. Um, One, because I really don't know where to take this, Mm -hmm. but also it kind of touches on a a bunch of the points we were talking about. Um, so this deck is solidly three colors. It mm-hmm. is um, Fire, Primal Shadow. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little weird in that it's even though it's Fire, Primal Shadow, it kind of has a sacrifice theme and a small weapons theme in it, which are not sort of the supported theme of uh, Menace. But to get back to what we were talking about with power bases, right now I do have three seven drops in the deck: uh, a Skyfire Hellkite, a Sky Horror Draconis, a Shugo Hook Sword. Um, so that sort of hits your three, your three six or more drop um, threshold that you mentioned above. Also, I have a lot of recursion, probably too much recursion for what I can. Really play it Yeah, yeah. So I managed to pick up three triumphant returns, as well as two reforges and a soul drain smithing. Um, so the two reforges and the soul drain smithing um, are probably too much for my only weapons are a fury blade and a shugo's hook sword, and I have two blade crafters, which are probably again too much for just two relic weapons um i also have a seek power so that sort of plays into how much my overall power will actually be um so that was another question i had and a third question i had and this is very tangentially related to power bases but i picked up two levitates and this is a new card in this 8.5 format that and levitate. For those of you who don't know, it's a one power or it's a one primal fast spell that says: give a unit flying, draw a card. Um, give a unit flying till the end of turn, draw a card. Hmm. And I did have a question: Am I supposed to just like? Are you supposed to just always play levitate? <laughs> just <because laughs> it's like a, a free card.
1: Um, the answer was yes when you could target the opponent's units. Uh yeah. now it's still probably yes. Uh because even if you uh can't kill them with it, you can still just like cast it on turn 3 and cycle it like if you just need to find your power or whatever. So
2: okay. Yeah, I pretty much always play levitate if I can. Uh so to me this looks like a uh a solidly skycrag deck with just a couple of—I mean, basically, you're playing Shadow for this display of menace and these triumphant returns. Like right. you're re- you, you also have a recycler, but I, and uh, and a kindling carver to as the only way that I'm seeing to sacrifice just... something on command. Yes. Other than I guess display of menace,
1: a recycler so... doesn't even sack on command. It just uh, gives you equipment when something dies.
0: Yeah, kindling carver. Yeah. Like, there's a,
2: that's a lot of things that need to go right for Recycler to work in this deck, so I would look at that as a cut right away, is you have to play the Recycler, have the Kindling Carver in play, have something else in play to sacrifice with the Kindling Carver, and then you get your weapon. I don't think it's worth it. You could also really? Just I just thought it was worth it because you j- another unit just has to die. Yeah. That's jamming your two drops. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean... Yeah, I mean, mean, maybe if you. I I don't think of Recycler as being so. I I haven't seen Recycler work. (laughs) Yeah, I would cut Recycler. I'd probably cut Skeletal Dragon, which is your other shadow card that you're kind of splashing for. Yeah. I would would probably cut Entrance Cultist, exactly. Yeah. Um, So that makes it into more of a two color deck that is splashing shadow rather than a three color deck, which is a good starting point because this is going to be an aggressive deck. And you can cut one or maybe both Blade Crafters because you are playing only two weapons.
1: Yeah. I think we're looking to cut around nine cards or so. Well, yeah. at least that's where I would go to 17 power plus the Seek power.
0: Okay. Yeah, see, I guess I was just wondering whether I should be playing 18 power plus a Seek because I do have the 3-7 drops.
1: You do have the 3-7, but you also have Four, sorry, three Cinder Maw which will make two of your seven drops, cost six.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, that's true. Okay. Yeah, and that's the other interesting... I feel like I would cut a Cinder Maw before a Recycler. But maybe just because of influence? I mean, I don't know.
1: I think that Shadow is going to be... Like how we, earlier we were talking about, two main colors plus a Splash. Shadow mm-hmm. will be your Splash in this one. And things like the Triumphant Return that will be Splashing... You, don't even, you definitely don't want to be casting those early. You want to be casting those much later in the game. And like the uh, dragons that Tota will make when it dies, those have the influence requirement removed, so you don't have to worry about that. Um, and Recycler, you kind of want to drop early just to make sure you actually get your fix-it. Um, right. Because otherwise, they'll probably just be playing it later, and then attacking with your 2-2, they'll just eat it, and then you get your 3-2 weapon, which you know, I'm not sure that the weapon is more valuable than having the extra unit.
0: Okay. All right. And, okay. And so, how many Triumphant Returns do you play, especially once we cut four or five (laughs) units from this deck, and this is now a 15 unit deck? Am I still looking to play three Triumphant Returns?
1: Cutting the uh, Shadow Units still puts you to 16 units.
0: Uh, Yeah. I kind of want to cut Woods and Crone, too. Is that.
1: Uh, it... Let's see, we got Display of Menace, we got Rock Slide And Biting Winds And Biting Winds, yeah I mean, it's not great, and you have Hopla Barbarian, it's not great but, um, you know it's I don't know if this deck It looks like it's trying to be a little aggressive and I'm not sure if I'd want to cut another 2-drop But
2: Okay Yeah, All I right. think I would just leave it in as a 2-drop that uh, that has some synergy with about 4 cards in the deck Wow, you guys are
0: so much lower on
2: Recycler than I am. I'm. This uh, my, my experience mind. with it is that unless you have a way of consistently sacrificing something, that Recycler often just gets killed first, and then you don't get the weapon at all.
1: And okay. often plays into Rectifier amazingly well for the opponent.
2: Yeah. yeah. Yeah it's it's tough to get it's tougher to
1: get re- value off Recycler than it than it looks. Um, uh, Previous it, format that it was in when, when it first came out, I liked it a lot more than I like it right now.
2: Okay, I would agree with that. All right. Well, that's I also think uh, Death from Above is probably a little ambitious here. I don't see a lot of units that you can use effectively with that. I think Dancing Flame and Geminon's Berserker here are really the best candidates for it. Well, after I triumphant return, my Dancing Flame three times. That's true. It'll be pretty big then. Yeah. But then the question is do you actually need to death from above it or do you need to <laughs> just simply attack with it?
1: <laughs> that's it. I okay. think
0: I think that's for the listener to decide. No, okay, no. No. Yeah,
1: just, I, I think the deaths from above can be cut. I think the refor- I think I'm cutting the reforges. Um, just not enough weapons for me to want them.
2: Okay. And by that logic probably also the Soul Drain Smithing. Yeah.
1: Right. And that puts us at seven cuts, so there's like two more, roughly?
2: Probably the Blade
1: Crafters then, right?
0: Yeah. Okay. Huh. That's interesting. My instinct with this deck was to keep a Blade Crafter, keep a Reforge, play an extra power than you guys are saying. You can do that. Um... And then game? I guess I was viewing it, even though there's like a lot of aggressive cards, as a, a less aggressive deck and sort of leaning into recurring either a big, the getting my Shugo Hook Sword online or Triumphant returning some of these bigger
2: units. I think I would I, focus on one of those over the other is the thing.
1: Yeah. Looking at the stick, I think that the way you're going to win the majority of your games is... Um, recurring the big dragons over and over
2: Mm-hmm.
0: and sees so and so you think i should just like take okay and not worry about this other i guess i was just thinking of it more as like a pocket of synergy where it's really just it's not asking that many card slots and like we were talking about reforging a fury blade's not that bad
1: but okay right. i mean you have slayer and smithing in there too. Like I could see keeping a reforge over the smithing, um, or even the blade. Keeping a bladecrafter crafter in, you know, at least one just because finding them is still good. But yeah, yeah. you can All
2: keep right. in a blade crafter and a reforge if if that's how it works out. Um, that is, it is a strong play. It's just not going to happen consistently because, you know, for obvious reasons, you don't just don't have a lot of weapons.
1: Yeah. He's playing a 43-card deck because Levitate is basically, you know, not yeah. a card.
2: That's true. So everything you're doing is going to be happening more consistently. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. Cool. Well, I hope that was <laughs> understandable and uh, maybe helpful. I don't know. Maybe I just was selfishly trying to get help from two of the best drafters in the game. I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> I would with definitely that, I think,
2: keep a cloud of ash. You have a cloud of ash here, and I think you're going to win games with it.
0: Okay. Cause I, think gonna st- I think you're going to get.
2: I think you're going to get stalled out on the board a couple of times, and then you're going to be able to use surprise damage with a couple of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I th- I, I, uh, although you know, looking at it now, you've got so many flyers and so few ground units. I wonder how good cloud of ash is in the deck. Usually, it's good. Yeah. It lets you get through flyers for one turn if, you, if your opponents come up with some blockers. But usually your flyers are going to be bigger than their blockers anyway. So maybe cloud, maybe look at Cloud of Ash as a possible cut as well. Yeah. I can't wait to have my Cloud of Ash in hand and three Cinder Matotas on board. Okay. Yeah, exactly. That will probably happen. Yeah, <laughs> that's a problem. That is a problem. You really need more ways of sacrificing things here. You're, you're going to be using Display of Menace to sacrifice a Cinder Matota pretty often here.
1: Yeah. I would have loved like a Marsh Dragon in this list yeah
2: yeah
0: y- yes yeah i this is uh this uh, this is off topic i'm gonna cut this from the, the podcast but this is what one of my problems with drafting is like what i was kind of talking about earlier is where i just like have all of these good cards in my pool and i'm like oh, this is kind of a deck as compared to like i need to get better at like pulling, taking cards out of the pool and being like, this is really my game plan and then just so I can focus my picks a little better. Um, Yeah.
2: I mean, there's nothing wrong with taking strong cards and then then just saying, yeah, I got a bunch of strong cards. Great. I know, Uh, but then you have this where you have like like
0: three different things sort of all competing for deck space and none of them really
1: fleshed out. Yeah, you got a bit of spell damage in here, a bit of weapons, bit of dragons.
0: Yeah, yeah. I started with the spell. It, it's all started with the spell damage theme, and then that just didn't come together at all. Um, I forget why that happened, but because uh, I drafted
2: this two weeks ago. But um. <laughs> uh... all right. I mean, you've got, you've got these levitates. The Another thing that might happen is that you'll levitate a Cinder Mottota to block a large unit, and then you'll get your dragon. <laughs> That's one way to get rid of them.
0: Yeah, and it doesn't cost you a card. It's great.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What a card. Anyway... <laughs> I think we'll end our show here. So once again, a thank you to all our patrons for making the show a success. And for those of you who are not patrons, a reminder to give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google play. You can join us in our discord, uh, where we'll have a link in the show notes below, as well as um, a reminder to thumbs up all of Raven dragon's Reddit posts about the podcast. I think that really um, helps get the word out, especially if you leave a comment. Um, and then finally, don't forget to send in all your seven win deck lists you do this week to at gmail.com. And remember to keep on farming. Have a good night.
2: Bye. Have a good night. See ya. Yeah, and
0: uh, I guess then finally, thanks. Uh, thank you, collector, for coming on. We really appreciate it.
1: No problem. I enjoyed it. Yes, thank you. Cool.
0: So, uh, so what should we all play for the tournament this weekend? Is there a tournament?